This is Tom Hewlett. I'm a director at Way Forward, but in my restless dreams, I was a producer on the Silent Hill series. And you're listening to the Crimson Head Podcast. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Cut off. No survivors found. I'd rather starve to death in here than be eaten by one of those undead monsters. We're both gonna die. Wait, don't shoot. Down. I lost all my men because of her. All is lost. Welcome once again to the Crimson Head Podcast. My name is Joe White. I was the actor for Chris Redfield in Resident Evil 1, the remake. But tonight, we're leaving Raccoon City for Silent Hill. Our very special guest worked on Silent Hill Origins, Silent Hill Homecoming, Silent Hill Shattered Memories, Silent Hill Downpour, Silent Hill HD Collection, and Silent Hill Book of Memories. From producer to writer to game designer, not to mention some voice acting. We're very honored tonight to welcome Tom Hewlett. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Joining Tom, we have the rest of the Crimson Head team. We have the Oracle Dragon. Hi, everyone. Hello, Tom. We also have Batgirl. Hey, guys. Welcome in. And, of course, the inimitable George Trevor. I don't know what that means, but I'll take it as a compliment. Thank you, Joe. You're not inimitable because I do a pretty good imitation of you. Sort of talking like like this. I'm George Trevor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, these voice actors. We also have three very special Silent Hill experts to help us Resident Evil nerds through the fog and delve deep with Tom into the psychological horror of Silent Hill. From the superb Voices in the Static podcast and Silent Hill Historical Society website, we're very delighted to be joined tonight by Whitney. Hey, everybody. Also, from the Resident Evil podcast and pioneer of one of the earliest Resident Evil websites, RE A New Blood, we have Rumby. Hey, everyone. How's it going? And returning, an original member of the Crimson Head team, he can be heard on many previous episodes and can now be found at the Project Umbrella RE Digest website, USS Command. Howdy. Okay, now put on your big boy pants and big girl pants and let us enter Silent Hill. Tom Hewlett, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much. Can I have a disclaimer up front? Absolutely. The Silent Hill community is very uh, sensitive to... That's an understatement. <laughs> ...to the uh, the prospect of new games. So I just want to be clear up front for any anybody listening. I have not worked at Konami in nine years. I don't have any special knowledge of what Konami is doing. I don't have any special knowledge about new games, PC ports, spin-off, remakes, nothing. So if I say anything that sounds like I'm hinting at a new game, I am not. <laughs> I assure you, we're talking about stuff that I worked on in the past. I would love new games just as much as everybody else. I'm a fan of Silent Hill, but uh, I'm not dropping any hints. Please don't read between the lines. <laughs> Keep your hopes in a reasonable place. <laughs> you know, you saying that has just, you're still going to get articles pop up like, oh, he's dropping hints. By saying there's no hints. It's trending on Twitter every other day, so <laughs> just. <laughs> My heart can't take it anymore, guys. <laughs> it's always trending. 
Right, Joe, do you want to go ahead? You've got the first question. Mr. Hewlett, what do you feel are the vital ingredients for your perfect survival horror experience? And what singular Silent Hill title you've worked on encapsulates these themes and game mechanics most successfully? Starting with an easy one. Um, <laughs> what's the yeah. perfect thing and how? which one of yours? Yeah. Um, my first horror game was Resident Evil 2. Uh, you guys oh. will be proud to hear. I had a lot of fun with it. And then when I played Silent Hill 1, it just hit different. If I can just say that kind of surprises me because you go way back. Yeah. You've been involved in the gaming industry. Tell us how many years. My first job doing QA was in 1992. I was 12. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 12-year-old, 1992. So you've seen the evolution of the gaming industry really from not its birth, but its, uh, what would you call that? It's puberty? I think I figured out I worked on a game for every platform since the NES. Wow. Wow. Um, it's neat. <laughs> but yeah, so horror in general, like movies, I've enjoyed them to an extent, but I was never afraid of them, I guess. Just somehow I saw through, like, oh, it's a movie. So when I played Resident Evil 2 and then Silent Hill, like, the interactivity of a game just, like, clicked. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. I can kind of enjoy horror this way because I'm controlling this character. So when there's when I walk through this door and there's suddenly a nurse right in front of me and she's going to hit me with something, that's like, I can feel that sort of, like, danger. So I really fell in love with Silent Hill. So it's hard for me to say what's important to me about horror without just it's just silent hill. right an earlier interview with you where you talked about you really liked the game mechanic of searching and the puzzles more than the fighting aspect of the games that's my favorite part of it too i would much rather play the puzzles sections of the resident evil games than the run and gun stuff yeah yeah for sure and like i'm not bad mouthing resident evil here because I, I have played many of them and I, I enjoy them very much but uh like resident evil 2 when you'd be backtracking it'd be like oh they they respawned a zombie here i gotta kill it again or i can't get past it which was very gamey it was like the action game genre manifesting itself in resident evil so silent hill they really didn't do that it was really like a lot of the times you were kind of supposed to run and avoid it if you could not just to save ammo but the combat's clunky enough that if you mess up the enemy's going to hit you really hard and then you don't have health items but that really amped up the uh the horrors so I was able to, with the action thing, I could kind of be avoidant, and that would play up the horror aspect of it. And then the puzzles were like, oh, this is interesting. But then in, in Silent Hill versus Resident Evil, you'd get a creepy riddle that thematically tied into the main character, or their mindset, or the town. So it was just kind of the whole package for me. So my ideal horror would be, like Silent Hill, it's kind of ambiguous. Like, there's a, there's a story with really strong mm -hmm. themes tied to a character that's important, but then the details aren't necessarily ever answered. It's not like, at the end of the story, I know these things. Did you try to bring a sense of that? So when I came onto the series, Origins and Homecoming were in development, and one aspect of Homecoming that, that the story writers were showing off, not to the public. Here's the answers. Here's how this works. And here is why this happens. And one of the big things I did was come in and be like, no, 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 no. Like from a storytelling aspect, you can have those answers as the writer. Mm -hmm. You can decide that you need to portray this, but like the player can't feel like there's hard answers. Like we got to mix this up. We got to like throw some ambiguity in there. So some of the notes that I wrote for that game were explicitly just to be like, hey, here's this old concept from an older Silent Hill. And like, maybe that's a play too. So maybe this isn't what you think it is. Okay, so you're you're maintaining that sense of off balanceness, if I can coin a phrase. Yeah, uh, that, exactly. You, you yeah. never really and, know everything, and that's kind of important to support the uh, the horror aspect of it. Yeah, exactly. And so again, I'm going to draw a comparison to Resident Evil. <laughs> Just to, to show I'm a little bit legit, Resident Evil, you might want some answers about how it's working. What was Umbrella planning? How does Wesker fit in this time? Because you want the continuing narrative. And Silent Hill, I feel like that's not what you You don't want ever to feel like, I completely understand why this links to that other thing. Because I think it, it kills part of Silent Hill's mystique mm -hmm. a little bit. 
so in Homecoming, I kind of did that. And then with Shattered Memories and Downpour, um, Downpour was more of the traditional Silent Hill game. And so we really just tried to make sure that ambiguity was built in from the start. So we give you a premise. Murphy's a criminal. He ends up in Silent Hill. So that's compelling on its own. But then you kind of wonder, is he really the reason that this bus went to Silent Hill? Why did he end up in prison? What does this mean about his past? And so we just wanted to make sure that it, that game as a whole was built that way. Mm-hmm. And then with Shattered Memories, which was a reimagining of one, it was kind of a fun experiment of, we're going to make this game it's familiar enough the player's going to feel like we did a remake which i think would actually play differently now because it's it's more common to have remakes and reimaginings right. but then we're going to change details that tell this this story and they're still linked to the original game you're still traveling to the same sequence of locations but what you're seeing is different or purposefully betraying what you thought you'd see and so that was a fun way to take a game that was ambiguous but it's also the game that spawned all these other games and movies and everything and now we're like challenging what you thought you knew about that and so that was a fun game to work on too because just setting all this up and changing how different characters are. It was just a fun, like it wouldn't work in every series, but for Silent Hill, it somehow works. And that was fun. You're obviously very passionate about the, the franchise. You've been blamed inadvertently for a lot of the problems that people see, and I use problems in quotes. But what is the passion for you that allows you to be still interested? I said to GT, it's amazing that you're willing to still yes. talk about the franchise, talk about your time being involved, because obviously so many people painted a target on your back, so unfairly too. But what is it about the franchise and your work on it that kind of you want to still talk, keep talking about it and still be passionate about it? Like I said, I was a fan of the franchise long before I worked at Konami, so loving Silent Hill, I wanted to, I did my best and I'm proud of what I did. And then as far as that work, you know, I work hard on any project I'm on, but especially something I'm already a fan of. I'm proud of the, the work I do on any game, and so the people making comments don't have the same perspective I'm in, and they're making assumptions, and I know that those assumptions aren't correct, so I just do my best to focus on that. <laughs> Tom, thank you. You mentioned some of the games there that you worked on for Konami, and we'll go through each one chronologically. Silent Hill Origins, released in March 2007. You were the associate producer. Initial fan reaction to the game's first build was overall negative, which saw the classic survival horror third-person perspective removed, in preference for an over-the-shoulder-style camera and a gameplay shift to combat-focused action, as Capcom had recently done with Resident Evil 4. Alternatively, Resident Evil 4's beta scenarios were third-person, included Silent Hill-style psychological horror and transitions into an otherworld-style parallel dimension characterised by a coloured filter. This was scrapped for the action-driven Resident Evil 4 that we knew, significantly growing Resident Evil's audience and securing the series' future at a time when it was stagnating. Should Silent Hill have expanded its audience with similar gameplay progression, potentially leading to the series competing alongside Resident Evil to this day, at the expense, of course, of losing themes from its origins? I actually think it was an interesting time because, you know, when Silent Hill started, it was very much, let's make a game like Resident Evil. Resident Evil kind of defined what a survival horror on a console would be, and so Konami wanted to make a game like it to compete. The era you described is kind of where they drew lines in the sand. So it was like, okay, Silent Hill's kind of been getting a little more about emotions, character pasts, personal, like focusing on the main character, how their past is, is projected through the town. And then Resident Evil was more, was always more action-y because there were more guns and things. But then 4 kind of said like, hey, maybe we're more of an action game in a horror setting. And so that was actually an easy time for the people working on Silent Hill to decide, okay, we're, we're not that. We're going to stay here and keep developing this more cerebral type weird atmospheric horror because now Resident Evil is doing this other thing. So we kind of have a little space. Like Resident Evil moved a little bit further from our space. So rather than try to copy what they did, let's stay in our space and develop this space. 
I know <laughs> the early origins seem to be a reaction to Resident Evil, but um, I came into Konami right after that had changed. I don't know all the specific decisions that led to it, but clearly it was like, this isn't what Silent Hill should be, even though Resident Evil did it, and clearly it was popular, but it lets us kind of stay in this space and have it for ourselves. And then it's been interesting over time, as, as Silent Hill has not released new titles, that Resident Evil has kind of explored back into a space, not becoming Silent Hill at all, but <laughs> there are atmospheric things that are stronger in 7 and 8 that certainly feel like PT, maybe feel a little more like Silent Hill, but then they're also they're also recontextualizing what Resident Evil is. Like, oh, we're in, a, we're in a house again, but what does that mean 20 years later in the original game? So it's been interesting to see the ebb and flow of how the two series kind of own the space and define what it is. It's a big genre, <laughs> and I think there's lots of things to like. People can each like multiple approaches. It's not like there's hard lines where you have to like psychological all the time or you have to like action all the time. So I'm glad that Resident Evil being the biggest, the biggest shark in the pool has explored that and didn't kind of stagnate. It's funny that back in the day when they changed and got action-y, if you told somebody it's going to be first person, they'd be like, yep, that's what I'm worried about. It's going to be a first person shooter. And so, but instead, now it's first person, but it's done to get you more intimately close to the horror and it's gotten more horrific and atmospheric. So clever designers doing clever stuff. <laughs> I'm going to shorten that question down. I'm sorry. It's almost the size of a small novel that is ridiculously too long. So <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting, you know, the way the two series went their separate ways and the, the, the beta for that was taking on what Resident Evil 4 became. Yet what Resident Evil 4 was going to be very much a Silent Hill style game, which I would have absolutely adored. But I will find a way to say that with half the words I used in that question. Yeah. <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. During your time that you were in charge of these various titles, like what sort of pressures were put upon you as far as like trends in gaming? Doing the Vita title, you had this idea about what you wanted to do and then got told it had to be a dungeon crawler. Was there other elements where you could feel the industry was kind of at a push to what these games had to be? Not as much as, as someone would expect, actually, um, especially given that Resident Evil was doing these big moves at the time. It's a natural assumption to be like, well, the pressure would be to do the Resident Evil thing, right? But the management usually left it up to the team, meaning the production team and the developer. But we were also always really clear, like, we're sticking to this atmospheric horror thing. We're not changing what Silent Hill is that we want to keep it the specific way. And I always had presentations about here's why. <laughs> here's why this is important. Here's how the fans have reacted to this versus that. So it's not that it wasn't in the air, but it wasn't ever like this overwhelming pressure that we had to like keep fighting. But that's why when I read the treatment for Shattered Memories that came from Climax, I kind of said, hey, I want to produce this because I wanted to make sure it was this unique idea. It was using motion control. It was this unique take on Silent Hill 1 that I was like, okay, this would be really easy for someone to access accidentally mess up just because they had good intentions but didn't quite understand so I, I wanted to get out in front of it in that case so yeah we were always up front with it and i don't feel like there was a ton of pushback to that tom you said you didn't have any you weren't there for that beta for origins yeah i actually didn't see it for until after origins came out ah <laughs> uh, but what's your question i could i was just wondering if you had anything else on the, there's a item that was in the beta version of origins called the eye of samael and the way the item worked is you look through it and see the other world through this little eye but it evolved and became the mirror mechanic i was just wondering if there's any more information on that oh, interesting yeah i don't know i like i saw that e3 trailer with the hallway then i came to konami i think at the end of that year and then um it had already changed to climax uk so i was just focused on what they were doing and i knew that the cg that we were using had was from the original 
you know, Konami had already spent money on the CG, so we had to use it. We couldn't afford new CG. And then afterwards, I saw, like, the, the footage came out. I saw that. And then when we were recording some VO for Shattered Memories, Sam Barlow told me about the original, like, the Climax US stuff. That's when I found out it was more comedic and oh, man, all sorts it's of stuff. Weird. So I was kind of in the dark, too, at that time. <laughs> So Konami allowed Climax to change origins from its offbeat narrative, provided the changes were done within the same time frame, giving uh, Climax UK a mere six months to turn the game around to an experience more akin to Silent Hill's familiar style. Consequently, origin script, level design, and enemy models were redone within a week by Sam Barlow. What are the main features and elements you would have included and expanded on if you had been gifted more time and an adequate budget? That's an interesting question. I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to turn it into a game development question. So I apologize to the person that asked it. It's really not a situation in game development where you'd ever think about what could we do more if we had different resources. With any project, you start with sort of a budget and resources allocated and you, you kind of work it all out. And you made that decision before it gets greenlit. So you kind of just start with what you can do now. We've all seen games where it was overpromised and then it got whittled down to something different because there was, you know, realities of development. But when it's something like this version of Origins wasn't working, can you guys do something to it? It's really about, like, in the time we have, what can we do? What is a better story that's more true to the series? How many locations do we need? What could those be? How would those tie into Travis? And then making sure that you can actually pull it off in the time you have. So developers generally aren't thinking about, like, hey, if this reality was totally different, what could we do differently? Because that's just not where the game the new version of Origins was born from. It was really, you'd look at your key your key goals, which would be make this more true to Silent Hill. It's supposed to be a prequel, so tie it into Silent Hill 1, make sure it makes sense, and then tell the story about Travis, because they wanted to bring in that sort of character-driven storyline. So, again, the fact that Sam did that in a limited time, and that the game <laughs> was able to be made really quick, I think is great. Yeah. I think it's really impressive. But I can't really answer what else we would have done, because it's just not how game devs approach projects like that. I was kind of wondering, given that it's been mentioned that you guys couldn't really change the CG movies too much. I mean, you could edit it a little bit, like uh, someone, I guess, who worked for Climax UK on the Something Awful forums mentioned that they were able to get rid of like these screen masks the cultists were wearing. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, would you have liked to have been able to like redo the movies to or add in new movies that kind of focus more on the new story you guys were telling? I think that would be good, yeah, instead of, again, this is speculation, but I'm sure Sam wrote out a story about Travis finding Alessa and what that would be, and then it was probably a pass of like, okay, so what's the cutscene? <laughs> How do we adjust it? So that would probably be the most obvious reality shift that someone would do would be, let's find more compelling things that we would write from scratch about Travis and Alessa, and then make those the CG movies instead of what they were kind of working from. Mama? Daddy said you were dead. Are you dead? I'm not dead. Locked away. Out of sight, out of mind, not dead. I asked them to bring my boy to me. Mama. Come here, boy. Let Mama take a look at you. Speaking of those CG movies, I have a question. The figure that runs out in front of Travis's truck, is that supposed to be his mother, in your opinion, or someone else? 
I thought a lot of it was Alessa, but I can't. Maybe I'm thinking of a different scene. The reason I ask is the P2P user uploaded like an unfinished extended version of the intro scene. Both Alessa and the hooded figure appears on diff- two different points in the scene. And it oh. kind of hints more to, oh. to might be his mother. She talks about how he's a real bad person and all that stuff. And then at the bad ending, if you look at those files, that could be easily fit being his mother staring at him or something. There's like a slightly extended cut version for the intro. And it kind of seems like it could fit more with his being his mother as far as the bad ending goes. This is one of those funny things about human memory, right? Because I've I've seen though I remember the screen mask versions of the scenes I watched at Konami, but then I've seen the ones in game so many times from just playing the game and doing the ESRB submission and all that stuff that like details are kind of fuzzy. And you know, Mister Twilight being a character that existed and then didn't, <laughs> I always kind of tied him to Kaufman somehow. Because like again, I don't know the original story completely yeah, that was, they were trying Kaufman. to tell. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, sh- I should watch all the stuff they've uncovered. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. I learned so much from those videos. I was like, wow, we really dodged a bullet here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you, Tom. Moving on to the next game that you worked on, Silent Hill Homecoming, released September 2008, which you're credited as associate producer. I've got a note here that says of the six games you worked on, this is your least favourite. <laughs> we'll get into a debate because I, I, love, I love Homecoming. Right, Oracle Dragon, Oracle, you've got the first question. Yes, I do. And my question basically is, what challenges did you face and consequently overcame in tying Homecoming's narrative as close as possible to series canon, and were the differences within the team as the importance of respecting Silent Hill canon? It was an interesting thing when I came into Konami, Homecoming had just done a big, not direction shift, just like a like a solidifying of direction, I guess. And so there was a lot of new script coming in and, and finalizing these details. And famously, my, my first reaction was seeing Pyramid Head was in it and being like, we got to get him out. This is this is crazy. Pyramid Head is in uh, Silent Hill 2. He's tied to James. He was in the movie, but that's fine because the movie's different. But this is a game and what are we doing? So <laughs> that's kind of where my initial focus was, and I was uh, rejected because Pyramid Head was such a big part of the game. So it's cool. Hmm? <laughs> he's cool, Tom. He's cool. He's, uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> he's definitely cool. I'm not going to argue that. But my focus on canon was just keeping it ambiguous because the story was trying to answer a lot of things, and they were trying to tie in a lot of the old games to the new games and kind of establish a new arc around Shepard's Glen and Josh and how does this tie into the old games and. It was a lot more American cinema where it's like, hey, okay, people have favorite characters, let's bring them back. It's fun to see them. And I'm not sure that plays well in Silent Hill. Coming in as a fan, it was like, no, 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 no. I mean, I guess in a way that felt a little Resident Evilification because we're all excited to see Chris and no Leon showed up and what does this mean? Those are all questions you ask when you're playing Resident Evil. In my opinion, it shouldn't be when you're playing a Silent Hill. <laughs> if you're following Alex, you shouldn't be worried about what Heather's up to. So that was kind of a big focal point. My uh, involvement was limited on Homecoming for a lot of reasons. And then at the end, when the original producer was gone, and so I was kind of in the producer role, just like, hey, someone has to produce this to finish it. It was almost done at that point. And so that's when we renamed that Pyramid Head as the Boogeyman and tried to justify why he would be there. And I wrote some notes in the game to just to support that and also to support the ambiguous stuff. My focal point was in tying it to canon was just, hey, they'd set up the story and it didn't not tie into canon. They just made a Shepherd's Glen as a new area. And here's where Silent Hill was, and here's why we're in Shepherd's Glen. So I just needed to make sure that all fit in a Silent Hill way, which hopefully I accomplished. 
mentioned at one point that they were very keen to drop like Easter eggs to the other games in Homecoming, and one of them we were supposed to find out that L was actually Laura from Final Two. Do you have to sit them down and go, "Hey guys, you can't do this." I think this just to qualify, since you guys are calling me out as this being my least favorite. <laughs> I'll qualify it as, I think this being such a divisive entry in the series, by the end of it, I was like the face of it, because I was doing the interviews, because the producer was gone, and then having all these frustrating moments in development where it's like, okay, you guys said you wanted to do this, so let's do that, but why is it like this? So I have all that baggage on me, so that's kind of why it's my least favorite. The other games I had a little more control, or was listened to a little more, or was at least more involved with, so if you're going to be mad at it, it's at least somewhat my fault. Whereas <laughs> Homecoming feels like I was just this fan in here yelling at people, trying to be heard. You're on a boat in the middle of the game, and Alex puts a coat on L. I almost called her Laura. On L. And it's a green coat. And that was originally supposed to be James's jacket from Silent Hill 2. I'm not sure why, just as a neat cameo. But then when they rendered it, it wasn't... James has this thick military-style jacket on. And this was a thin... Windbreaker? Almost a windbreaker. <laughs> And so it was like, okay, guys, a year ago you told me that was James's jacket. That's not James's jacket. So are we making it James's jacket, or are we not saying it's James's jacket anymore? Stuff like that. Or it's it's just people insisted on things that I didn't feel fit, but then they went in halfway. <laughs> it was like, uh, that's frustrating. Now when, when they brought up his connections, like LB Laura or the jacket, you can see like, oh, I, I guess, that's weird. But no one thought that the first time they were playing the game. <laughs> so I guess that's my contribution. <laughs> It was originally supposed to be a trilogy. Did that get nixed when the first producer left, or what? Because it was supposed to culminate um, well, in like, wasn't a, a boss battle with Alessa and Josh over Silent Hill, like a DBZ battle. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of those things where it's more the developer, you know, when you're a developer working on a, a franchise, it's like, hey, if you do a good job and this goes off really well, maybe you can do the, the sequel. And so that would be more the writers and the team coming up with, well, what are the next, like, what are we building towards? If we get the sequel, what's our contribution? So it's not like Konami ever had like, okay, here's the next three Silent Hill games. They're all going to be done by Double Helix. And then that got broken. It's more that here's what the developer's idea was. So it's what Homecoming was sort of setting up. But then it didn't happen because they weren't, they were no longer the developer and I wouldn't have oh, okay. wanted that happen anyway <laughs> uh, okay. that storyline i think you can do these cameos the right way i don't quite understand where the thinking lies behind these ridiculous you know over the top easter eggs that are just gonna pull you out of the story they're gonna be so jarring it's almost just kind of like the producer saying hey we know there used to be a silent hill game before this one and an example of one that i think's done very well is um you can see the room from silent hill 4 in downpour more of a subtle nod yeah, yeah. At the start of Homecoming, you meet Travis from Origins. And I think that's fine. He has a reason to be there. He's a truck driver. So you can see like, oh, he's still driving trucks, I guess. But you also have a little ambiguity. Like, is it really Travis? Is he a spirit? Is Alex dreaming it? You can kind of play with it in your head a little bit. But then yeah. the more characters you bring in, in addition to Travis, the more ridiculous it kind of gets. It just kind of breaks down the believability of this yeah. spooky place we're not supposed to have answers for. <laughs> it's like, well, we have an answer for each of these characters. I just don't think it fits in the Silent Hill. Yeah, especially yeah. with the psychological aspect of it. There are a lot of uh, hypotheses about the mental aspect of Silent Hill, the fog world representing the subconscious, all of those exactly. yeah. kind of concepts. 
I was going to ask a, a question related to the basically the turmoil because I think it is reflected in what Homecoming represents that you've got a lot of different ideas I think maybe the reason why it's most diverse if you'd had come into the project earlier or had a little bit more leeway near the end would there have been more sweeping changes you would have liked to have made rather than the few you were able to add right at the end or were you, is it much like you were saying before you, you don't know until you would have been in that position he definitely would have actually been a soldier and it would have been what effect war would have on someone as, as seen through Silent Hill that's what I wanted. That, I wanted that, to see I don't know. that would have been different. That's what I wanted. Like when I heard a soldier was going to be in South Hill, I'm like, oh, that's going to be such a neat perspective. How do how do they yeah. handle PTSD yeah. and whatnot? And then it was like, just kidding, you're not a soldier. You're just crazy. <laughs> I think the most compelling horror have a really simple premise that you can summarize in a sentence, but implies so much more that you're compelled to experience it. So James gets a letter from his wife saying to come to Silent Hill. Okay, that's cool. Also, she's dead. Oh, whoa, hold on. <laughs> I gotta find out more. And so to have this kid was a soldier and now he's in Silent Hill, that's like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that could be. And when it, the twist is like, just kidding, he's not, you've now burned that premise. You can't then go, hey, we're doing it for real now. It just kind of is, is a wasted premise. And, and so I'm just kind of angry about it. <laughs> It's such a cool idea. I think you could have told Homecoming's story without the soldier aspect, and then we'd still have the soldier aspect. Oh, but you wouldn't have been able to do all those barrel rolls. <laughs> Josh, are you in there? No one comes to visit anymore. Who are you? I wish I could remember. Who left you here all alone? Everyone else is gone. Don't blame them. You can understand, can't you? It's hard to watch something die. In the game's files, there's like tons of unused audio from a revisit to Alcamilla Hospital. Was that cut out when you were there or before you got there? It's hard to say. There was an internal demo called a vertical slice that had just happened. And then there's always extra VO that you cut when you make a game as you edit it down to like the right version. So it's hard for me to say if it's just in the files, if it's from the vertical slice, which would be like a proto story that wouldn't necessarily reflect anything, or if it's from like cut that was recorded later that cut. I don't know. I couldn't say. It's interesting though. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I ask because like some of the audio files is able to find a bunch of audio tapes interviewing the mental patients, and one of them was a young Walter Sullivan. And I I think that was a pretty nice little thing that got cut, sadly. Oh, that's uh, interesting. I don't, I don't remember that if I knew about it. That's cool. Yeah. That reminds me, Alex's first voice actor, they found Nolan North's voice in voice files. I was just wondering if you knew maybe why was he recast? Was he just part of that initial I remember there was a demo? casting process. We did a casting process, so many people read for it. Those shouldn't have ended up in the game. <laughs> you don't put voice cast stuff in the game. Yeah, there's like eight hours of unused audio in the game's files still. That's crazy. We could have discovered Nolan North. Troy Baker (laughs) did do, one of his Troy Baker's early roles was Shattered Memories, so I'm going to plant that flag right now. (laughs) Alchemia Hospital, Shepherd's Glen, and the Grand Hotel are very immersive locations with haunting narratives and atmospheric sound design. What development issues caused Homecoming's latter stages to feel less flushed out and rushed? In any game, the earlier areas that you build, you have more time to flesh out because they're there the whole time. So you can keep polishing them and, and improving them. And then other areas come in later. Or maybe the original version doesn't work. You have to like remake it, especially in a game like Silent Hill where, where it might be thematically important. Like you have to have area X. You can't just cut it. If there's a problem with it, it might go in later. You have to do it really quickly. So the balance of game development is just which areas are most important to flesh out and, and do you start with those first and then make the game out of order? Or what do you do? I think in general, that's just why... 
certain areas didn't get the same love that other areas did. I don't know specifically reasons for each one, but the areas brought up Alcamilla Hospital was in the vertical slice, so that had been built first and then revised and revised. The hotel was one of the first areas. That's where we did our focus test, was that level, to test the puzzles and stuff. So, like, that obviously existed early on. So I think, you know, they were all planned with the same level of lore and stuff, but but just realities of game development and the way it happens, and then how decisions were made that led to that result. The Hell Descent area was originally a lot more populated with enemies and events, and then it turned into, like, a very spooky, atmospheric, crazy walking area. <laughs> But if you look at the actual gameplay, there's not there's not a ton going on. So that's another example of just visuals are cool, but it just didn't have everything that was planned. Again, I don't have specific reasons one by one, but that's like an overall reason. Homecoming was the first Silent Hill game that I played. I, I got it alongside Downpour. I just absolutely loved the mood of the beginning, the mystery, obviously knowing that there was something quite insidious lying behind the fact that I wasn't in any of the photographs. Clearly, there's something odd going on there. The mood music, Terminal Show and Witchcraft, I think are fantastic tracks and really just set the atmosphere. Based on just like the unused audio files in the game, a lot of later areas would have had to have been cut down anyway. Overlook Penitentiary has dialogue from visiting every single aspect of it, but you only ever get to a few, a small chunk of it in the final game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How restricted was Homecoming by the inclusion of predetermined elements from the 2006 Silent Hill film, and what were other sources of inspiration and influences? There wasn't a like a mandate of like, hey, tie this into the movie. All parties involved understood the movie is kind of a separate canon. It's not the game canon. But since the movie would be drawing in new fans, the people might be curious about Silent Hill when they watch the movie. They wanted to have elements that were familiar to the movie so that no one would come in and be like, well, hold on, what's going on? Like, like who, what? So I think that was part of another draw of having Pyramid Head in there and it being similar to his movie design and then having the cultists with the heavy hazmat suit type thing. Those two elements were really like, hey, these are visually similar to the film. Um, There wasn't any other like, hey, this isn't like the film. There wasn't anything like that. And then I think other references, people have made comparisons to Hostel and all sorts of stuff. I think that's all fair. Different horror films of the time. I kind of think Alex is like Dean from Supernatural, but no one believes me. (laughs) I can say it. So I know my opinion of wanting more Pyramid Head in Homecoming is a very unpopular one. Speaks very much to the fact that Homecoming was my first introduction into the series. But far more sensibly in terms of series canon, you tried to prevent as much as possible the appearance of Pyramid Head within the game. And despite a lot of pushback from within the development team, you were successful in curtailing Pyramid Head's appearance quite significantly. He was planned to appear within the game considerably more very much in the role of a pursuing antagonist in the role that we see Nemesis play in Resident Evil 3. With hindsight and the contrasting fortunes of Silent Hill and Resident Evil in the preceding years since Homecoming, was it the right choice and would it have been in Homecoming and more widely the series best interest to have utilised Pyramid Head even more so as initially planned or do you still feel you made the right choice cutting as much as you could Pyramid Head's appearance in the game. I feel the same as <laughs> I did that. <laughs> I uh, personally thought when he turned up, I was like, no, he's supposed to be James's thing. No, what are you doing? 
I understand that a series like Silent Hill is difficult because if each game is different, I'm going to compare it to Final Fantasy. <laughs> each game is its own story, so you're not going to see characters in every game that are from the earlier games. But then Final Fantasy, you've got returning things. You've got chocobos and moogles and cactars and all sorts of cool things that still represent the brand. You don't even have to put them in the games, but you could have like, here's a cool moogle picture and he's holding the new Final Fantasy and it's a brand awareness thing. But Silent Hill, each game is about the psychology of a character. So you end up with things that return like nurses, and it's like, well, hold on, why are the nurses back? Why do these nurses look exactly like the Silent Hill 2 nurses? Should they at least look different? And so there's all these problems, and it's, it's just kind of a, a thing the brand will always deal with, it, just by the nature of Silent Hill. Those characters kind represent of... the glue of the game. They're the psychological through-line connecting tissue uh, that right. holds yeah. the world together. It's not necessarily yes, exactly. the individual stories, but it's the brick and mortar of the environment in which the story takes place. Yes. Perfect. The town itself, the background of the town, the town itself, the thing that you would think would be the most contrasting. Yeah, and that's the truth of it. Element. The town is, is that, the town. <laughs> but it's hard to use a town as a marketing tool. <laughs> and that's something we were always thinking about because I was trumpeting that it shouldn't be Pyramid Head. Obviously, that's somewhat of a losing battle because it is Pyramid Head now. <laughs> He's in cart racers and all sorts of things. But that's part of where Howard came from in Downpour is who's our mascot, not meaning mascot, but who is our recognizable character that you would see and go, oh, that's Silent Hill. I know what this is because I know that guy. Howard was kind of one, one uh, aspect of that. Silent Hill as a series has always kind of struggled on a sales front. Not terribly, but obviously I think it peaked with Silent Hill 2 sales. But the community is such a vocal, kind of strong, they, they kind of say what it is, and I know you've kind of fought for those sorts of things. Was there ever a lot of pressure from, from that front where, like, especially from the sort of marketing sales thing, where there was expectations like, this needs to drive up sales, we've had a movie, because this is the sort of game, I think for me, Homecoming is like the closest to a Hollywood game attempt. It feels very Americanized compared to the rest. I can't say there was really pressure on other than, like, this needs to sell well, in a general sense. Mm. There wasn't, like, look at how well Resident Evil's doing. we got to hit those numbers. That wasn't ever really something that was presented to me. With Homecoming and Origins, that's when it came west, like, like America was in charge of the series. But I don't know what expectations that had from a business standpoint or any promises made or anything like that. If you hadn't been there, being that front person, being the person doing the interviews because you're the producer, because there was no one else, and being that vocal person for the legacy of the franchise, do you have an idea of where you think it would have gone? I can't say that I, that I know where it would have gone. That's kind of presumptive. <laughs> but the little Silent Hill group, I made sure that we understood what Silent Hill was. And the things that people outside of that group would say were always things like, oh, you should do a game about the Brahms PD department. And Sybil goes in and it's like a shooter. If I knew about a spooky town, I'd send in the government and they'd bomb the place. Maybe that's a game. So those ideas are horrible and they're not good Silent Hill games. But that isn't to say if that person was working on Silent Hill, they wouldn't take it seriously and realize on their own, like, oh, that's a terrible idea. That's <laughs> There's a million reasons not to do that game. Here's what they are. I heard a lot of bad ideas from folks, but I'm not saying that they would have made those games if I wasn't there at all, because who knows what they would have done. So I just tried to do my best. I was already a fan, so I had that pressure of, let's try to make Silent Hills that I would want to play and that would be true to the series, and that's kind of where my head was at. 
talking about what you want to see in Silent Hill, Tom, your preference, you kind of err towards more the psychological horror as opposed to the cultist elements. That resonated with me because in playing Resident Evil, I've been a lot more invested in the emotional side of things. And when I'm walking along the Spencer Mansion, I'm not thinking of zombies and, and the T-virus. It more feels like a haunted mansion, quite frankly, and the psychological elements that come with that is what immerses me in, in, in Resident Evil. That's how you like to see Silent Hill very much, that psychological horror, as opposed to a focus on groups and, and the cultist element of it. I think that's just where Silent Hill has legs forever. There's no shortage of psychology and characters and interesting pasts that would manifest into things that's a, a bottomless well. Whereas if you're dealing with the cult, which isn't to say that it should be absent, in Downpour I purposely put in some cult things in there because it was missing. But if you have this continuing story about a cult, again, you have to provide answers, and that answers have certainty, and then that's less ambiguous and less interesting and less scary. I don't think Silent Hill should not have cult aspects, but the more you focus on it, I feel the less interesting the story will be. Even if you have one really interesting cult story, the next game, if it had to tie into the cult, like then the more it ties together, it's just answering more questions. And I wonder if to the detriment of the narrative that Resident Evil has focused far too much on its differing organizations, as opposed to maybe focusing more on the, on the emotional themes. It's getting a little confusing. <laughs> Eight confused me a little bit on the organizations. I want to make one comment just to make people listening mad at me. I actually like Pyramid Head's inclusion in Homecoming. Okay, that's it. Oh, come on, you've got, you've got to give reason. <laughs> There's Japanese reference books that clearly state that multiple people can see different types of Pyramid Heads. So the lore in Homecoming fits with that. What do you think Pyramid Head represents? Well, there's different types, so there's not one set nature. Like, the one we see in Silent Hill 2 is unique to James, but that painting in a, in a museum existed before James' visit, so someone had to paint it. For Homecoming, it can represent what Alex could become, or uh, it could represent Alex's dad. It was Alex's monster, his parent killer. Yeah, right? that's one way you look at it. I've also seen people say it represents his dad's uh, wanting to sacrifice him because Pyramid Head's dragging around a big army knife. This is all fine. <laughs> no, one, no one should be mad at you. <laughs> you of all people know how the fan base is, sadly. They can be rabid. USS Command won't say this on his own podcast. He waits until he comes onto this podcast to drop those bombshells. We'll move on from there. On to Silent Hill Shattered Memories, released in December 2009. Tom, you were the producer, your favourite of the games that you worked on. It's one of the most immersive experiences on Wii, making full use of the controller in unique ways, generating survival panic at its best. What was the origin and how did the concept develop for the game mechanic that gave players the opportunity to explore different paths depending on answers given to dialogue prompts? Shattered Memories had a, an interesting path to what it became. One of the first things I did when I was there, I, I pitched a Wii version of Silent Hill. I had lots of ideas what that could be control-wise, what purpose motion control could have. We worked on some prototypes with various groups. It kind of went away. And then when the producer of Homecoming left, we found out he'd been working with Climax on what would become Shattered Memories. And so the motion control kind of came from my early ideas, but then they obviously added their own. And then Sam Barlow had come up with the psychology angle. He works on games where you <laughs> examine things people say and react to them. What was his role? Sam was the designer, director, writer. I saw the pitch and I was like, oh, I gotta, I have to produce this. I need to be the guy <laughs> shepherding this so that things like this aren't lost along the way. Especially then when, when we didn't have all the indie games that kind of do that sort of thing or, or explore different ways to tell stories. You know, that could easily be like, well, this is dumb. No one wants to sit in a psychiatrist's office. Let's get rid of this. But that was really well, compelling to me. So I wanted to make sure it made it into the game. Some of us have to sit in psychologist offices as part of our parole, but you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
the ankle bracelet won't let me uh, avoid the psychologist. <laughs> Just thinking about the Wii in terms of the power and its, its technical abilities compared to its console counterparts at the time, and thinking about the environmental storytelling of Resident Evil is so strong in the earlier games because of technical limitations of the platforms that it was birthed on. Did you find that working on the Wii, technical limitations that it did have, did you find that that actually aided you and helped you with the storytelling? If you have limited resources, you can only build so many things. So you have to make sure that like what you are building has a purpose or multiple purposes. You're putting the best stuff in and making sure it works. So with limited resources, you can only put in the very most important stuff. So that's probably plays a factor. It's so well designed and, and, and so immersive in terms of how you interact in the relationship with the Wii controller that it doesn't quite translate to when you're playing it on the PlayStation 2 port. Yeah, it was also kind of like a graphical downgrade as well. It was just overall better experience on the Wii. I was pretty disappointed with how the PS2 version looked, especially compared to the PSP version. It seemed like the PSP had more detail, I remember, because I bought all three when it came out to see the differences. And I remember <laughs> that the PS2, like at the very beginning where Rorschach slams up against the ice and it's supposed to like startle Harry, um, on the PS2 version, you could barely see the Rorschach, but in the PSP and and the Wii version, it was translucent and it just, it ruined the scare, in my opinion. Yeah. And they only added a PS2 skew late in development because they weren't confident the Wii, the Wii was kind of waning in popularity by the time it was coming out and they worried it wouldn't sell enough. They wanted it and then it was cut and then near the end of the development, they're like, oh, let's bring that back. Let's bring back the PS2 SKU because PS2 was way popular in like Brazil, like South America and whatnot. The 2001 GameCube release of Resident Evil, a direct remake of the 1996 original, is universally considered to have exceeded all fan expectation. Yet the recent reimagined- oh, I don't agree with this. <laughs> Yet the recent reimaginings of Resident Evil 2 and 3 arguably fail to recreate the same level of emotional storytelling, characterization, and essence of the originals. What are your thoughts on this? And would there have been any merits in Shattered Memories being a direct remake of Silent Hill rather than a reimagining? That's not my understanding of the success of the recent remakes myself. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I disagree. Um, I disagree with that. <laughs> I really loved the Resident Evil 2 remake. What are you doing, GT? I think we're going to have to out the person who wrote this question, aren't we? Yeah, GT. I'm a fan of the originals. What do you want me to say? I agree with you. I think the remakes of 2 and 3 kind of suck. Let me put it this way. The Wii version, Shattered Memories, it became a reimagining of Silent Hill 1. It was still had the same essence of the first game, but it kind of turned things on its head. And actually, it surprised a lot of longtime fans. Do you regret that you weren't able to create like a direct remake, like this the Resident Evil GameCube remake? Or are you glad that you had this opportunity to kind of use the Wii mechanics and surprise longtime fans with this reimagining? Um, I think it's dangerous to do a direct remake for the same reason that people are arguing about <laughs> how successful Resident Evil <laughs> 2 and 3 were. You're never going to please everybody with it. You're just not. So no matter how great it is, there's going to be some change or some, some missing thing that someone else really resonated with. So it's always a dangerous thing. Sometimes you get lucky with like the GameCube remake, where it's kind of universally accepted that's super great, the definitive version, and the one that gets released on every platform. But that's kind of rare. So that's always a risk that we, we would always want to avoid. So, you know, Origins was a prequel, and then Shattered Memories was a reimagining. But I think this is my least favorite piece of critique. Well, if they just took out the Silent Hill stuff, it would be fine. It's a great game. 
because without Silent Hill 1 and the ties to it, Shadow Memories can't exist. That's the whole game. <laughs> like, every level, every character, it's all designed to be a different version of Silent Hill 1. And to play with, if you've played Silent Hill 1, what were you expecting, and then what did the game deliver, and how did it betray you, or how did it surprise you, or, like, that's the whole game concept, other than just using the Wii motion control for horror purposes. So, yeah, it's Silent Hill 1 without the cult, pretty much. Right. I'm really happy with the game that we made, and the concept that excited me was the fact it wasn't a remake. It wasn't trying to replace the original game, it was actually taking what you knew of the original game and, like, messing with you, the player, in a Silent Hill way. And so I, I really thought that was compelling, and I, I think the game did a good job of it, and so I think the risks of doing a straight remake are far greater as risks than what we gained not doing that is great. So I think it was better to avoid the risk altogether. <laughs> A uh, little favorite fan theories. One of my friend, October, she really likes it. She always says that Shattered Memories is like if the bad ending of Silent Hill 1 was canon and Harry did die in that car crash in Silent Hill. So it's it's kind of a neat way to connect it to the original games. Yep, exactly. And that's why it's cool having the ambiguity of the series is you can think about connections like that. Like, oh my gosh, is this game jumping off that? But a lot of people have looked at it reductively and, and acted like we were trying to say that the bad ending was now canon. and This was the new... And it's like, no, 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 no. We're not directing the franchise that way. We're just saying, hey, look at this idea. Like, this is kind of cool to think about. My favorite bits is a lot of the horror was more real-world horror. Like, stuff that could actually happen to someone. Like, Cheryl getting bullied in school, having an inappropriate relationship with a teacher... Some of the voicemails were really disturbing when you took a closer listen to them, like that girl dying in the woods or the two brothers and one of them drowned in, in that little um, aqueduct. There was a lot of real world horror. If you took a closer look, it was like, oh, geez, yeah. Silent Hill, it seems okay, but it's actually still just as messed up if you took the time to do all the extra exploration and got all the echo messages and things like that. There's always this fear of what you'll find urban exploring and shared memories for the first playthrough really does echo that urban exploring feel where you have no idea what you're going to find in, around the next door or corridor or anything like that. Yeah, that's a cool comparison. And I do love the use of the cell phone to find little hidden things across the maps and stuff. Yeah, that was definitely my favorite bit. I was like, oh, let's try calling uh, 911. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. And it was a great way to incorporate a bunch of different Easter eggs. I don't know about you guys, but I, I replayed the shit out of this game. <laughs> I did, too. Want, I really I, loved it. And the music. I wanted to get all the different changes in the sceneries and characters if you looked at too many different things. Like, one of my favorites was on the first test, if you said that you would drink, it would automatically change the cans from soda to beer. And little things like that, and it was really fun. It made replaying it fun for me to see what I could change if I made Harry more of a dick or lustful and things like that. Oh, Tom, which Harry do you like the most? Oh, that's a good one. Which Harry do I like the most? So there's like, there's the normal Harry, there's the womanizer Harry, there's the drunk dad. The ones that connect to the different endings. Uh, I like Goth Dahlia the best. She's cool. <laughs> I don't have a favorite bad Harry. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny to see him <laughs> macking on Lisa and Michelle <laughs> in one of the endings. I was like, damn, dude, making a sex tape? Okay. <laughs> Okay, now moving on to my favourite of the games that you worked on, Tom. Silent Hill Downpour. I absolutely adore this game. It's got genuine open-world survival horror. I would love to see Capcom do something similar within the geography of Raccoon City. 
but back to the game in hand, released on Xbox 360 and PS3 on March the 13th, 2012. It's just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Tom, you were senior associate producer and writer. We've got some great questions for you on Silent Hill Downpour. Over to the Oracle Dragon, who I think has the first question. That I do. During Silent Hill Downpour's early development, what themes, scenarios, and game mechanics were important for generating a survival horror experience with an immersive environment? We really wanted a compelling premise, and so coming up with that simple, like, you're a prisoner that ends up in Silent Hill was really what we wanted to hit on early on. So once we had that, we knew, like, oh, this is a good idea. And we tried a bunch of stuff, maybe experimenting with multiplayer, and that didn't end up being in the final game, obviously, but throughout trying different things like that, we still came back to that premise, and the premise was the same from start to finish. Where we wanted to explore some gameplay that things that worked in Shattered Memories, like chasing or, or opening the doors slowly, and then bringing back the main serious stuff, being more true to the originals than Homecoming might have been. That was all considerations we had. But the most important part was just the premise of something compelling that we would develop. This can't be right. Got your name on it, doesn't it? Seems plenty right to me. Of course, you won't know till you open it, will you? No. I'm finished with the riddles, the mind games... Whatever I did to get here, I've had enough. I want out. Do you understand me? Do you? Son, you still don't get it. It doesn't matter what you want. Okay, thank you, Tom. I do have another question for Downpour for you. Atmospheric sound design is essential for immersive survival horror. Can you speak about Downpour's sound design? And what was the brief for composer Daniel Licht, previously known for his music for the TV series Dexter? The audio design was done by Nathan McCree, who had worked on actually the earlier Tomb Raider games. And so he just wanted to make sure it was a good designed audioscape. And then as far as Daniel Licht, again, once we couldn't use Akira Yamaoka, who'd done all the previous games because he left Konami, we really tried to seek out a good composer that would not copy that style, but have his own style that also fit. A new style that didn't feel alien to the series. It still felt natural to Silent Hill, even though it was obviously not Yamaoka's song. So once we located Daniel Licht, who did great stuff on Dexter, and I think did great job on Downpour and Book of Memories as well, we probably would have sent him some of Yamaoka's music, General Silent Hill. Here's what the brand is, it's atmospheric. We're not dictating what he should do, we didn't want him to copy what existed, but we wanted him to be aware of it, so he knew, like, okay, this is the space that fans want or are expecting, so how do I interpret these themes, how do I interpret this space? Definitely wanted to give him room, because we're not composers, <laughs> but inform him so what he's creating is correct and interesting to fans. As a fan, I just want to say I, I really enjoyed how he kind of incorporated the sound of water and rain in a lot of the tracks. It really sounded like it was <laughs> raining while you're listening to the music. It was definitely more cinematic feel compared to Akira, but I thought you guys picked a really good <laughs> replacement. I don't have a plan B. I don't know who else would have been this good, so I'm glad we had <laughs> licked on board. What mode and atmosphere was the design team searching for with their choices for Downpour's licensed music? Standout tracks include If I Had a Boat by James Vincent McMorrow, Off the Road and Words of Love by Anna Turnheim, and Willow's Song by Doves. That was all, all the licensed music was, was again, Nathan McCree choosing. I think he probably pitched us a couple of ideas, like, hey, would this sound right? I think Devin Shatsky might have brought up Born Free, which plays early on. But that was just trusting Nathan McCree to have a, have a vision and sort of pick songs that fit that vision. But I've definitely heard a lot of people really resonated with sort of offbeat choices. It makes it sort of, um, you're not taken out of the game when you hear it. You understand, like, oh, this is a real song, but it's a downpour song. 
all Resident Evil fans will resonate the first time they walk into the Spencer Mansion, very much so with the RPD, and you, you hear the piano echoing out when you go into the RPD for the very first time. I've got to say, just before you enter Silent Hill, and then it just comes up on the screen, Escape from Silent Hill, and you turn the radio on, and I think it's the um, the Anna Turnheim track, Off the Road. That, to me, just emotionally, and, and how it really just feels saturated in the world, that's up there for me, with those really, really iconic moments in Resident Evil. It kind of made me think like, oh, wow, it made it feel more realistic to me. I know some fans weren't really into it, but I thought it was a nice surprise when I turned on the radio and it was like a real song. I was like, oh, yeah, I know this. Tom, this is like a lore type question for Downpour. When you first get to Devil's Pit Stop and the diner by the menu, there's a sign that says a warm welcome by Homer Stance. Then in the basement of that same place, you find a memo about this guy peeping in on people uh, who's staying at the pit stop. Then later on, you find a homeless man named Homer who happens to be wearing a prisoner jumpsuit. Is that supposed to be Homer Stance? Like, did he get arrested for being a peeping Tom? Um, I can't say for sure. All of us were kind of seeding in things like that. Brian Gomez had a lot of stuff. I wouldn't rule it out. It's definitely a possibility. Yes. And there was also like other little things too. When you're in the Centennial Building, you could see a picture of Shepard's Glen. I thought that was a really nice way to put in little nods for fans to get all excited about. <laughs> Especially when you get to go to Henry's apartment. That was a very nice Easter egg and experience because I was like, holy crap, I know this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay thank you tom we have another downpour question resident evil's spencer mansion and raccoon city are littered with iconic game files telling tales of tragedy but with silent hill downpour these types of haunting narratives have been lifted off the page as side quests for the escape from silent hill stage giving a much stronger emotional punch than their text counterparts that we see on the screen when we play resident evil what were the source inspirations behind these in impactful side quests and from who i have to ask this and from whose mind came the shocking ribbons quest oh yeah that one is really good yes very dark the side quests are they're kind of fuzzy they were always a concept we wanted and they weren't getting written at the start and i had a i wrote up an example quest which turned into like the basement there's a basement where you get attacked by a doll but you don't know what the dolls are yet so yes. you just feel like you're getting hit by nothing that's a good scare so, by the way <laughs> <laughs> yes so there was a side quest there. There's not now. You can kind of see pieces of it. There were several designers, and I think they probably all contributed. The thought was like, what's a creepy... It has to be kind of creepy. It's own little story. And then the more it fit in naturally with the themes or the world, the better. And so then we picked out the best of the best. I don't remember who wrote the ribbons one, but I know that one of the team refused to work on that part of the game because it was yeah. um, too disturbing and close to home for them. So they just said, I don't want any part of this quest. <laughs> In case people don't know, um, that side mission involves Murphy following these ribbons and notes and whatnot, and he learns that these ribbons were put up by a mother of a special needs child who needed the ribbons to find her way back home. The mother got tired of caring for her daughter, so she moved the ribbons so it would lead off a dock into the water. That's horrible. It was very, very dark. These aren't fantastical enemies. These, these are the lives, tragic lives of real humans and the pressures that they're under. True crime things are now in media. Like, there's definitely a, a human draw to that sort of thing. So, something we hit upon in Downpour, I guess. Do you have a favorite side mission in Downpour? My favorite's the one I wrote that didn't get in the game. Oh, okay. 
Am I right to think that's the one where you go down into the basement and you find a milk carton that's referencing a missing child? You know, the sound of the crying behind that cell. Yeah, and then you're just hit with this really overpowered... Invisible force. Yeah, and just completely killed immediately. That's right, for sure. (laughs) Even though there's no side quest, it has an impression on people. Everyone knows the house. So I'm happy about that. I still miss my side quest. Because you can even get in there without your flashlight, and you're like, oh my god, what is going on? I can't see anything. I'm being beat up. (laughs) Almost everyone I talk to reference stumbling into that basement and wishing they didn't. They're like, oh, I I made a terrible mistake. Yeah, I think that's when I realized I wasn't playing Resident Evil, and I was kind of, I was in the big league now. Okay, some people have bemoaned the type of rewards players gain on completion of side quests, that these items are not considered sufficiently valuable. The purpose of side quests, in your mind as a producer, are they simply to add a fun little mechanic or something to allow the player to do as a distraction, or are they meant to forward the story and to provide connective tissue to the arc of the character? The things that you can acquire from a side quest, some people have bemoaned the fact that you don't get to keep them forever. So when you're designing these scenarios, was it for the strength of the narrative to incentivize exploration? not the strength of the reward. How do you balance that? For Downpour, we definitely wanted the side quest we saw as like the next evolution of the notes that you'd find in the earlier games where you get a couple notes talking about Walter Sullivan and it's creepy and intriguing and then, oh, it was intriguing enough they built the fourth game around Walter Sullivan. Stuff like that. So they always had these side stories and we just wanted to see since we're doing like a open world type thing in the city that you could find more detailed versions of those notes. So that was the core reason we did it. Now, we did hit kind of a sticky point in that Silent Hill isn't about building up your arsenal. Whereas in Resident Evil, you're getting upgrades and new weapons, and there's all sorts of cool rewards. So in Silent Hill, that's kind of a tricky thing we had to deal with. And so that's how people reacted. And I think if that mechanic continued, there could be more done with it. I I like the idea that things are transitory. In my view, that reflects real life. Someone who goes into battle may end up losing their weapon or they run out of ammunition. They have to discard that and go with whatever they come across down the road. So I think that the transitory aspect of that reflects real life a little bit better. Personally, I liked the side missions for learning more about the residents of the town. It was a good way to kind of see the darkness still in Silent Hill. I went for the side quests and whatnot just to learn those cool little stories. I wasn't going for a reward personally. That side quest where you have the little music box thing where you kind of rewind time with the ghost. Yes. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that guy axing his wife over and over by going back and forth. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorites. Uh, it was so creepy. And the cinema as well. Again, you're not thinking about the golden gun you get. How long am I going to have this for? It's just the whole experience. There's a screamer that turns up towards the end, but initially there aren't any enemies there. And it's just even more unnerving because you're kind of expecting one to come around the corner. I've heard in the Sun Hill community people being quite critical of the screamers. And for me personally, I just found it was almost like people had a problem with the fact that they had the audacity to kind of dodge and weave. I like the fact that the screamers actually provided you with kind of some, a little bit of strategy that, that they did dodge and weave a bit. Tom, is the truth and justice ending a callback to when Anne Cunningham was a playable character with her own morality choices? The extra scene characterising this ending doesn't focus too strongly on Murphy, focuses more on Anne, and having her seek revenge is a reflection of Anne's morality. It wasn't, we hadn't written the story and the full endings and things when it was multiplayer. So I think it's more just an aspect of the story itself, the Silent Hill end of the story kind of being Anne's that Murphy is a prisoner of. 
if you get that ending, you kind of get a glimpse into, did Anne learn any lessons or is she still going to, did she just change her target? And so that's just something to think about. Or for most players, I think it's just a satisfying, uh, that's the only one where Sewell might get what's coming to him. So it's kind of yeah. satisfying. I think that's the ending also in the Anne's story comic they went with. Yeah, well. it is. That's a fantastic comic. I love that. And I was actually going to ask, how far down the road did that concept go with regard to Anne being a playable character? Um, it was just early on. You're doing tech demos and stuff at the beginning, and we realized that we couldn't really support multiplayer to the scope we would need to. We didn't just want to do it for the sake of doing it. We wanted to do it well. So we just focused on the single-player story. What role does Silent Hill play for you? A purgatory reflecting and projecting nightmares or judging moral ambiguity? A revelation journey for sinners? A confrontation journey for the redeemable? Or something else? And how did your vision for the town's purpose and relationship with protagonists shape Downpour's narrative and gameplay? I definitely think, again, I'm basing it on Silent Hill 2. It's a spiritual energy spot. And lots of bad stuff has happened there. So there's lots of negative energies. And that, that causes people nearby that resonate with that to experience the games. <laughs> so I don't think it's like a force with a consciousness that's picking people out or it's not punishing people or whatever. That's just the natural human state. We have guilt that we carry around and stuff. So we kind of punish ourselves. And that just comes out when people are near Silent Hill. That's kind of what I think about it. I see Silent Hill as sort of a, an interesting aspect of it is like if someone believes a thing strong enough, it manifests, which mm -hmm. kind of explains Homecoming's whole story with the Shepherd's Glen people. <laughs> it's just a sort of an interesting angle that's kind of scary of they, influenced by, you know, the, the Silent Hill cult, they were an offshoot. They decided that they needed to have the sacrificing to stay safe from this evil, but they made that up, but they believed it enough that when they stopped sacrificing people, their town was destroyed by that evil power. That's, yeah. that's a scary, <laughs> that's a scary thing. So things like that, that's just how I think about the town in general. Again, part of my goal was to keep it from having any concrete answers. It's all people can bring their own theories and pick out their own bits. That's just how I would approach it. So for something like Downpour and dealing with Anne and what she thinks about Murphy, that's kind of how that would have affected it. What I do like about Downpour is it really is more of Anne's story. Because Murphy, he knows what he did. It's more about he's trapped in Anne's experience. Because Murphy's more like an Angela to James character. And I thought that was a really neat perspective to go for. We don't usually see it from a secondary character's point of view. So I thought that was a really cool risk you guys did for the Downpour story. How much did Vatra Games' Czech culture heritage influence Downpour's monster designs and aesthetics? I think it's an interesting aspect of that game that it's a Japanese series where the Western side was, was uh, producing it, and then the developer was in Eastern Europe. It just kind of had an interesting effect on the overall atmosphere, bringing all this together. So yeah, I think it's an important part of Downpour, and I think it's one of its coolest, unique aspects. You know, the monsters are part of it. I just think that's a nice, unique flavor that Downpour has that, that none of the other games do. The final two games that you worked on, Tom, during your time at Konami in 2012, March of that year, we had Silent Hill HD Collection. You're credited as Senior Associate Producer. And then Silent Hill Book of Memories in September of that year, where you were the producer, game designer, and writer. What character archetype do you play when you play Book of Memories? Oh, the goth guy. The goth guy? <laughs> yeah. What voiceover did you do? Do you enjoy doing voiceover? And, and have you done it for anything else since then? And then the second question is, what's next for Tom Hewlett? <laughs> I did James in the joke ending of Shattered Memories. And I haven't done voiceover. I, I've done little voices in games that I've worked on, but no actual roles. <laughs> 
And then since leaving Konami, I've been at WayForward as a director, and I've worked on a bunch of games. I think people should check out Goosebumps on various platforms if they like horror. <laughs> Recently, we announced that one of the games I directed, Spidersaurs, which is a Contra-style shooter that's coming out on uh, all major platforms. It was previously just on Apple Arcade. That's kind of what's next. I can't tell you what's next next, because it's a right. secret, of course. <laughs> I'm just going to say one more thing, Tom. Honestly, the amount of crap I saw you go through, I just couldn't believe the statements that people were making and absolutely horrible shit that people would be directing at certain people just because it's their jobs. On a personal basis, I can't believe the sort of crap that you went through and the fact that, as I said, you're still willing to communicate with fans. It's a huge strength of your character. That's fucking amazing. Because it's true. It needs to stay on the record. Tom, you shouldn't have gone through any of the stuff that people put you through. I really do appreciate the time that, you, that you've given us and you've afforded us and been willing and open to answer all our questions on these games, some that have had quite a contentious development. So thank you so very, very much. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks thank so you. much for inviting me. Tom, to be able to talk to you is honestly a bucket list of mine that I made in high school back when you were keeping my favorite fr franchise alive. And I really want to thank you for keeping it alive as long as you did. I didn't think I'll ever have a chance to talk to you to say that. Thanks so much. I appreciate it yeah. a lot. Thanks. In the same vein, Whitney, I never thought I'd be able to speak to you either. So it's nice to be able to speak to you. Oh, I never thought. You. I've seen the worst side of the fan base of Silent Hill. Nowhere near as much Tom has, obviously, but I've been banned from various sides from having an open-minded view of the series. So I was like, yeah, I'm never going to be able to get to a position in the Silent Hill fandom where I'll ever get to talk to someone who has an amazing collection like you do. So it's really an honor for me to be able to speak to both of y'all. I'm not really on the same level as Tom, but I'm honored. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, you have yeah. way more stuff than I do, Whitney. That's not true. <laughs> you guys are making me blush. <laughs> I told GT he had he has all the experts he needs. He didn't need me, but he still asked me to come along anyway. I just want to say thank you for inviting me. It was an honor to yeah. come on with a Tom interview. Well, I feel Tom, pretty yeah. special. This all started with just a little tweet that I put out thinking it might get maybe one like and one retweet just saying how great I thought Downpour was. And it literally became one of the most popular tweets we've ever, literally the decade that we've been on Twitter. And then Tom replied to it. And I'm sorry, Tom, that's when you just got yourself in my sights. So Tom Hewlett's <laughs> replied. Yes. I was just happy that you guys liked the game. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing actually to see other fans of downpour it often seems like i'm alone with my love for the game so it was really nice to see other people as excited and enjoyed it as much as i had well if you want a good feeling about being alone with your enjoyment of the series i love all the silent hill comics so you can imagine how i feel <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say we do really appreciate you coming on here and sharing a lot of goodies and insights with us. I love all the games of the Silent Hill series, so good job. <laughs> I'll second Oracle on that. When I first played Downpour, I thought I was alone, that I ended up loving it so much. But now I love that there's a group of people that I can actually talk about it. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah, thanks again, everybody. Yeah, you're awesome, Tom. Tom, on behalf of the Crimson Head team, myself, George Trevor, Batgirl, Oracle Dragon, and Joe White, and of course, our special guests as well, who very kindly joined us, Whitney from Voices in the Static podcast, Romby from the Resident Evil podcast, and of course, USS Command from Project Umbrella RE Digest. From all of us, thank you so very, very much for joining us, considering some of the contentious background, how open-minded you've been to answer our questions, and so many Sonic Hill fans will get so much from this interview, so thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks for having me. And uh, Ethan Winters is alive. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you again. Yeah, thanks. thanks again.